Friday lunchtime lectures at the Open Data Institute. Hello everyone, welcome to the ODI. My name is uh, Ursula De Marco. I'm the head of startups uh, here in the organization. I'm particularly excited to introduce this talk today because I love the work that my team and I do is around supporting startups that are driving innovation um, using data and collaborating with public and private sector organizations. So I think a lot of the uh, things that Roland today is going to talk about will resonate and I hope that you will also get some interesting takeaway. We've got an exciting title, which is Where Suits Meet Sneakers. Uh, so um, just introducing a little bit Roland Harvard. He's the co-founder of the innovation um, global open innovation agency, 100% Open. They work with the likes of Lego, Ford, Unilever, UBS, and government to help them innovate um, through collaborations with uh, startups as well. Today, he's going to be talking about the challenges and opportunities um, of the collaboration between the corporates and startups. So without um, further ado, I'll let Roland um, tell us more about his work and this exciting topic. Thank you Great. very much. Thank you very much, Ursula. Hi, everybody. Uh, great, to, great to see you. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Um, so, yeah, as Ursula said, uh, well, the title, the subtitle of my talk is Where the Suits Meets the Sneakers. Uh, the kind of main title is Mind the Gap. And by gap, I'm talking, referring to the gap between large and small companies and how they kind of collaborate effectively. Or I'm going to give some examples of effective collaboration, but also not so effective collaboration from hard-fought personal experience along the way. Um, I've worked for a number of very large companies and also very small companies doing product development, engineering, innovation over the last 20 years. But for the last eight years, I've been, uh, as Ursula says, co-founder, managing director of 100% Open, uh, and we describe ourselves as an uh, open innovation agency. So we now kind of sit on the interface between mostly large and small companies uh, who are seeking to find each other and collaborate with each other. So, um, yeah, my talk's kind of in two parts. The first part is based on a little blog post I wrote uh, last year for something called Touch Paper, uh, which is a, um, a great initiative to sort of foster best practice in uh, um, startup uh, and corporate collaboration. Uh, and the second part is a, more of a kind of personal story about a recent uh, collaboration we had as 100% Open. We're a, we're a small, small company in our own right, uh, where we tried to collaborate with a very large partner, and um, ultimately that didn't go ahead. So I thought I'd share um, slightly more personal lessons as well from that, because I thought that might add a, a slightly different perspective to today's proceedings. Um, so, so yeah, it's great to be here at the ODI. I'm very statistically literate. Um, uh, data literate audience, I'm sure. Uh, I just wonder, I think we've got about 12 people in the room, if anybody, um, and other people online, so hello uh, to those online as well. Uh, but just curious if, if anybody wants to guess uh, or shout out, uh, how many pairs of people do we have in this room right now? Does anybody uh, know, know the equation or hazard a guess? With 12 people in the room, how many different pairs of people do we have? Oh, we've just got an extra. <laughs> the odds have just gone up. <laughs> Anybody? Six and a half, then. <laughs> Six and a half. OK. Um, so it is, I'm going to work it out. It's 13 times 12 divided by 2 is, somebody help me out with the maths. Um, it's somewhere in the region of about 75 different pairs of people. So uh, you might not believe me, 
Uh, but this is a chart that's kind of done the rounds on kind of social media, which kind of illustrates the point. In fact, this, this should be able to help me. So we've got, I think, 13 people in the room. So we have 17, 78 different kind of pairs of people here in the room. That tends to be um, counterintuitive for most people. Uh, most people just think, well, I can connect with each of you, and they tend to forget about all the other connections in the room. And I think what's exciting but also terrifying about open innovation and kind of corporate startup collaboration as well is we're just so connected, um, which is a wonderful thing, but it's also a terrifying thing because it's knowing where to focus your energies and your effort and your investment is a real challenge. So I think um, something called the birthday paradox, if we had a few more people uh, and we weren't being live streamed, I'd, I'd get you to form a line in order of your birthday. You need 23 people to have the chance that two people um, share a birthday to be more likely than less likely, which is uh, surprising. So uh, I just want to kind of start with that as a kind of little illustration of uh, both uh, the opportunity but also the challenge of uh, open innovation and corporate startup collaboration because navigating all of these different connections uh, is, can be a challenge at times. Um, so Google the birthday paradox if you, if you don't believe me. But yeah, as per the strap line, this is quite a busy chart, but um, so 100% open, my organization kind of sits in the middle of two networks that we that we tap into and that we, that we do our best to kind of manage or navigate. On the left-hand side, we call the suits. So these are generally large multinational companies, some large charities as well, and also some, um, some uh, city and national governments um, on the left-hand side. Uh, and on the right-hand side uh, kind of represents what we would call the sneakers, so the kind of startup scale-up companies, generally under 10 million in revenue and five years in age. Uh, and we've built up a database over the last eight years that kind of roughly falls into these different uh, sectors and geographies as well. Uh, and so often a starting point for us uh, in any project is to try and figure out who do we know in both of these worlds and try and connect them together through a range of different kind of methods, which I'll go on to talk about. Uh, so the suits and the sneakers, uh, as in the strapline of today's talk, that's what I'm kind of referring to there. Um, uh, but just quickly to define my terms, I've used the phrase open innovation a couple of times already. That's kind of what we do. Uh, we define it very simply as sharing risk and reward with people outside of your organization. Very easy to say, um, sometimes harder to do, especially the sharing reward. That's when it gets really interesting if people actually want to share the reward of um, creating new value together. Um, again, lots going on on this chart. I won't go through it in detail, but the kind of open innovation corporate startup landscape it has matured considerably in the eight years that we've been in business. There are lots of kind of models that are now increasingly common. Uh, innovation incubators, corporate venture capital funds, accelerator programs, open innovation challenges. We would broadly kind of map them on this kind of matrix here where on the uh, x-axis down here is kind of how open you want to be. This is kind of probably more from a corporate perspective, but I think it also works from a smaller company perspective as well. Uh, so uh, down in the left, bottom left-hand corner is, is kind of the least open, and out here on the right-hand side is the most open. And then the, the y-axis up there, it's this kind of stage of innovation that you might be at. So... Uh, at the bottom left, exploring new ideas and insights. In the middle, you're prototyping and testing new products and services. And, and the sort of top left-hand quadrant, uh, taking things to market. And there's a few examples on this chart of programs. These are all from financial services sector, because this chart was produced for an audience um, uh, in that sector. But there are, of course, examples in, in pretty much any sector now of these kind of activities taking place. 
Uh, and it's both an exciting time, but there's also a lot of a lot of challenge with this. And there's lots of there's a few very successful case studies, and there's also lots of kind of failures along the way. So I think collectively, as a uh, as a as a network and as an ecosystem, we we collectively need to get better at that. So the work of the ODI and 100% Open and other organisations like that, seeking to bridge the gap between between these two different worlds. And I think, I guess, fundamentally, l large and small companies, I think, need each other more than ever. Um, large companies need the creativity and agility that uh, small companies that can provide, and small companies require the investment and scale that large companies can provide. And even though it's perhaps not as glamorous as kind of raising venture capital or the kind of Silicon Valley ideal of Mark Zuckerberg and his dorm room kind of coding and building the likes of Facebook, 97% uh, of successful startup exits are to some kind of trade sale or large corporate partner. So it's the much less glamorous but actually much larger significance in terms of how small companies scale and ultimately exit is through some kind of partnership with a larger organization or corporate. There's a, a Nesta report a few years ago that sort of did some analysis that, that backs up that 97% figure, um, which I can share afterwards if anyone's interested. But um, just to sort of come to, uh, I was going to present three challenges, um, but I'm now going to present six um, uh, challenges of uh, corporate and startup collaboration. Um, so the first three are from our experience as 100% open as a kind of facilitator broker of these kind of partnerships. And then the next three, a little bit later on, are, as I say, from my own kind of personal experience of having to try, try to do this uh, ourselves as 100% open more recently. So these kind of three we call the time is money gap, the anxiety gap, and the give-get gap, uh, which is a bit of an alliteration. So just taking those three in turn, the time is money gap, hopefully is reasonably self-explanatory. Um, but uh, from a large and small company kind of perspective, generally smaller companies are... They're trying to manage their time risk if they're thinking about working with a large company. Uh, time is money, and uh, the longer it takes to attend another meeting or another conference call or whatever it might be is all time that takes you away from earning money or, 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 or doing, you know, doing what you need to do to kind of survive and, and thrive. Uh, from, from the kind of larger company perspective, certainly in the early days, they're largely trying to manage personal and reputational risk. So time is a sort of almost endless quantity, or at least that's what it seems like from the small company perspective. Um, uh, so the solution there really, I think, is to start at the end, um, have a very clear and ideally a very fast process that everyone's kind of working towards. Um, and ultimately, if a startup or a small company is doing significant work, then I think they absolutely need to be paid for that effort. Maybe not at kind of market rates, but certainly um, a certain contribution uh, large company cannot assume that they will get significant time and effort um, just for free because that, that's a, a recipe for, uh, for an unsuccessful outcome. Uh, but to give you an example of a successful example where I think this has done extremely well um, from the financial services sector. So we've uh, worked with UBS for the last three years on what's called their Future of Finance Challenge, which is a global startup competition which has been running since 2015. Um, uh, in the first year, we had 2,500 applicants from 52 different countries, and they, they were kind of sifted down to the top 60 that received uh, up to 300 hours of mentoring and up to $300,000 of kind of prize money and support. Um, and a lot of the uh, travel expenses, because there were travel expenses, and, and, and a, a contribution towards people, uh, startups' time contribution was made out of, uh, out of the kind of funding pot for this program. And it's led to, so far, as far as I'm aware, 21 different uh, joint ventures, partnerships, proof of concept projects between UBS 
uh, and various external startup companies, uh, which otherwise wouldn't have happened, and some of which have gone on to be extremely successful. Uh, I think it's a very good model. It's uh, very re replicable elsewhere, um, but it's uh, quite unusual in the way that it uh, uh, is more mindful of that time is money gap that I think a lot of these other equivalent initiatives perhaps don't fully take into account. Um, so I could say a lot more about that, but just want to kind of go through and happy to answer any questions uh, at the end about any of these case studies. The second one is a bit more kind of nuanced. It's kind of when, when in the process do people uh, feel the fear and want to run away. So I call this the anxiety gap. Uh, it's probably best illustrated in this little chart here. Uh, there's a guy called Eddie Obeng, who, who, uh, who I learned this from, um, where in any project, not just a startup um, corporate collaboration, uh, generally most people's expectations are linear, but reality kind of is, no, is non-linear. So most people expect that if you're halfway through a project, somehow you'll have delivered half of the work. Uh, I presume most people in the room, or I hope most people in the room will agree that that's seldom the case. And the, the, the biggest gap is kind of roughly halfway in the process um, uh, where um, the, the anxiety really builds up. But in my experience of kind of startup and corporate kind of collaboration, uh, the, the, the anxiety gap is often biggest for the smaller company, the smaller part partner, early on in the process. Uh, and usually that fear is about a number of things, but um, a very common one is, will, will this big company steal my idea? Will they, um, will they, will they steal my idea and I, you know, I won't benefit from that? Um, on the opposite, the kind of large companies, I, I've seen again and again and again um, a, uh, a, a freak out. I don't know how else to explain it. People get very anxious, very close to launch. You know, you're going to launch a project, you're going to launch a, a program, or, um, uh, and as soon as it becomes public, or sorry, just before it becomes public, that's the kind of the biggest moment of risk. It's that point of no return, really. So from large and small company perspectives, that anxiety gap is very much there, but it sort of happens at slightly different points in the process. So one way to kind of tackle that is to, again, have a clear and fast and kind of robust process. But one thing that we've, uh, we, we've developed, especially around the, the, the small company fear about stealing my idea, and the flip side of that is large companies are often worried that they'll be exposed to intellectual property that will, 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 will expose them to kind of risk that they can't manage. So uh, something that we've, we've developed over the years uh, that we call an innovation airlock. So it creates a safe space for information exchange between large and small companies through a third party broker or facilitator, which could be ODI or 100% Open or, or anybody else. Uh, and there's, um, the broker has confidentiality agreements downstream with a number of smaller companies and a single confidentiality upstream with, with a buyer or a kind of corporation. The big companies like it because they only have to kind of si sign one deal with one party rather than with, with tens or hundreds. And the small companies like it because they get to get lots of help and support but also um, sort of test their thinking before it ultimately gets pitched to the, kind of the buyer and the customer. So that's a model that we've, we've, uh, we've used very successfully in the last 18 months with, uh, with Ford Motor Company on a series of city mobility challenges. Um, last year, we, we ran these in, in New York City and Detroit in the States. And in a couple of months' time, we'll be launching three more in Miami, Pittsburgh, and Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, and the intention is to bring that to um, uh, outside of the US, including London, um, either later this year or next year. So that's very exciting. And within that, 
Uh, we were looking at the future of transport and mobility in those two cities and the challenges with that, uh, really kind of co-creating the kind of need for new transport solutions with citizens of those cities, but also looking for kind of startups and innovators um, in those cities, but also around the world that maybe had uh, complete or partial solutions to those needs of those citizens and those cities. Uh, and we created this innovation airlock to sort of create the safe space for those innovators to come in. Uh, develop their solution with, with our support, in that case 100% open, ultimately to, to pitch that to Ford and there are a range of projects ongoing which have resulted from that process. So that's again another good example of good practice. I will give some example of bad practice in a minute but just one more, uh, one more gap to, to, to reflect on uh, that I would call the, the give-get gap. Um, so I would say generally um, collaboration can only really happen between equals where um, equal partners are sort of uh, both have relatively equal vested interest. That doesn't necessarily mean they're both investing the same things, but they're both standing to risk and benefit, um, and that, that, that's balanced, it's not imbalanced. Often in large and small companies, all the power and, and really sits with the larger party, and if that's true throughout, then I think the, the, the relationship ultimately will break down. So that's not sustainable in the long term, even though that's usually the starting point. So I think the key thing is just to have an explicit conversation about the relative risks and rewards uh, and to have at least two set of metrics. So the metrics of success for the small company um, and the risks and rewards for them will be different to the metrics of success for the, for the larger company and the risks and rewards for them. And so I think it's important early on in any kind of collaboration to, to map those out, be explicit about those, to measure those over time and course correct as required to make sure that the give and the get is, is reasonably equal or as equal as it can be on both sides. Um, so probably my favourite case study piece of work that we played a small hand in helping to create in the early days of 100% Open was um, uh, the Lego Ideas platform, which is now about 2 million people and counting who are posting ideas um, for new Lego products and services. Uh, and uh, the way this works is anybody, um, often kind of small entrepreneurs and individuals, can post an idea. You have to get 10,000 people to support your, your idea um, within the community. And if you reach that threshold, then it goes into a formal review process. And if you pass the review process, they, they ship a sort of bona fide um, kind of Lego product and things like Lego Mindstorms. And um, there was a female scientist set last year that was very successful and a range of other things. Um, every single one of these products sell out. So it's, and, but they, they share 1% of the revenue of these products with the originator. Now, you might think 1% sounds like not equal in terms of give and get, and I would have some sympathy with that point of view, but, but there is... Um, Lego can justify that figure and that there's a sort of ongoing lively debate about if that is the right sort of level. Um, one of the reasons why I think this is a particularly smart move from essentially a manufacturing-based company like Lego is they're essentially doing their marketing before they're doing their manufacturing. Most, most product-based businesses manufacture something and then figure out how to market it afterwards. But this inverts that process very successfully. And I think that kind of principle in a kind of connected world uh, uh, kind of like Kickstarter, I guess, is, uh, is kind of a very successful model that, that can and is being applied in other sectors as well. So that all sounds rather lovely, and doesn't that all work well? And there's lots of, perhaps, wisdom you may or may not agree um, in, in, in some of those success stories, but it's always more interesting to talk about what, what goes wrong and, and kind of what doesn't work. And so um, I mentioned Ford. Henry Ford's a very quotable, quotable guy. Um, 
but yeah, I thought I would share a more recent story um, from a 100% open perspective. So we're, we're 12 people with a big network. So we're a very small, um, maybe not quite startup, but kind of scale-up company with big aspirations. And, and we think there's an opportunity to do what we do at a much kind of bigger scale. Uh, and we thought kind of six months ago we'd found a corporate partner who I'm afraid I can't name because we're under confidentiality, but um, uh, we thought we had an opportunity to, to do what we take what we do to the next level. And so over the last five or six months, we've invested 500 or so hours into um, uh, developing that partnership with them. Uh, and about six weeks ago or so, um, that, uh, that partnership sort of came to an end by kind of mutual agreement, slightly painful mutual agreement, but I think collectively we decided it wasn't the right way to go. And uh, it's somewhat ironic to me because the role that 100% Open plays is often kind of bridging that gap between large and small companies. But I think we, uh, we discovered um, uh, three more gaps that I'd like to share, which comes more from a sort of a um, personal perspective, really. So one is, I would call it the experience gap. So here, the, the partner we were working with um, uh, did about 50 deals a year, similar to the one that we were exploring with them. We'd never done this before, so we were complete novices in this process. They were, at least in theory, extremely experienced. So we were, I think in hindsight, too reactive. They were, they were saying, we need you to do this, and we need you to do that, and we were running around trying to respond to all these different requests. We didn't really see how all those bits of the jigsaw pieced together. And somewhere along the way, I think we got slightly lost in the process, and I think they got slightly lost in the process. And I think um, one of my reflections from that experience is that, that we, as the smaller party, even though you know, we hold a lot less of the, the fewer of the cards in terms of, um, I guess, power and money and, and all those kind of traditional things, is we needed to be a lot more kind of proactive in kind of driving that process so that it worked for us as well. We were slightly at the mercy of, of their process and we thought they were very experienced, which they were, but, but it, that didn't really work for us. And ultimately, I don't think it worked for them either. So it, it comes back to that imbalance, I think, between large and small companies, which um, need, you know, is usually the case, I think, um, is often the case. And leads me to my, my second gap. Um, and this is probably the most ironic of the lot, given that 100% Open plays this kind of facilitator role. In, in the case of our, our recent example that I'm now talking about, we didn't have a facilitator. We thought we could do it ourselves. If only we'd sort of taken a dose of our own medicine, um, uh, maybe things would have been slightly different. But there were um, a huge number of stakeholders on their side. Every meeting, there'd be new faces who we hadn't met before. We didn't know what their role was. They'd be asking interesting questions, difficult questions. It didn't really matter, but it was a... It was a at worst, a distraction, and it was just hard to navigate. Uh, and to be fair, on our side, I think we had you know, different views and different people on our side, even though our team was much leaner and meaner. Um, and just navigating the, all those stakeholders and the ambiguity and the roles on both sides um, was very, very difficult when, you, when we were in the partnership ourselves. And I think it would have really benefited in hindsight from 100% open style kind of facilitator that was acting in the best interest of both parties and just making sure that data and information and stuff is kind of flowing and expectations are kind of managed equally on both sides. And I think that was missing. And I'm kicking myself now in hindsight, given everything that we've learned over the years about this. But, uh, but there we go. I'm sharing it in the, in the spirit of openness and hopefully others can benefit from that. And I think we will benefit from that as well uh, in, in long term as well. And the last one, and again, ironic given our name and where we are here with the Open Data Institute as well, I think um, in many ways, uh, we and our partners were very open about what we knew and what we didn't know. But in some ways, we were possibly too open uh, um, about some of those things as well. And I think there wasn't genuinely a real incentive 
um, for honesty on both sides about um, you know, what we could do, what we knew and what we didn't know and, and, and uh, what we weren't able to do. Um, and this is one I'm still grappling with in terms of what's the best kind of solution for, for this. But I think for a, a partnership to truly succeed in the kind of Henry Ford, in line with the Henry Ford quote, I think you really need sort of genuine openness, trust, um, and honesty between kind of these large and small partners for it ultimately to be successful. So these are six kind of gaps that I think exist. I don't think the gaps will ever be closed, but I think it's important that if you're entering into this, whether from a large or a small company perspective, that you're mindful of these and you put in place processes or uh, partners or whatever it might be to, to, to navigate your way around these. So the time is money gap is what it says on the tin. Uh, need to make sure the process is fast, robust, and clear, and so you're not burning through people's uh, people's time uh, because that uh, ultimately uh, will bankrupt uh, probably the smaller party before too long if you're not careful. The anxiety gap is just na navigating those different points in the process when people people get scared either about having their idea stolen or about kind of personal or organisational reputational risk and just putting in place acknowledging that up front. I think is is actually. Uh, uh, a large part of the solution and then sort of keeping calm and carrying on, as it were, when, when those anxiety gaps open up throughout. The give-get gap is that kind of um, uh, trying to have equal participation between unequal partners is very, very difficult, but have, have two sets of metrics, two sets of risks and rewards on each side that are monitored and measured throughout the process. The experience gap, inevitably the larger partner will be not always, but often more experienced. Uh, and, and trying to do what you can to be proactive on both sides to make sure it works in everybody's interests. The facilitation gap, it always helps to have a third party acting in everybody's best interests. And the openness gap, as I just said, having honesty and kind of transparency uh, and openness all round um, is uh, ultimately kind of necessary to be kind of successful. So those are just, I'm sure you've all got your own experiences and thoughts before I kind of wrap up and invite a few questions. Um, if you are interested, uh, we've done our best to codify um, uh, the open innovation kind of and corporate suits sneakers collaboration uh, methodology through a toolkit that we make available through our website. It's free to download. There's about 35 different tools that broadly fit into one of seven phases uh, from the first stage in terms of defining your strategy through to developing new ideas prototyping them and developing kind of business partners. So right from kind of beginning to end of the process. Uh, and there are currently about 35 different tools um, amongst those seven different stages, which uh, you're free to download and to use. And we'd love to get feedback from you if, uh, um, uh, if, if you're willing to share that and get your experience of how that works. And oh, yes, here's, a, here's an example of one we made for, for Crown Plaza, part of Intercontinental Hotel Group, in terms of training their own kind of colleagues and employees to to do this at scale themselves. Um, so I think that's pretty much all I was going to say. They used to say, um, uh, it's it, well, they now say it's not the big that eats the small, it's the fast that eats the slow. So Jeff Bezos made this point around, it's not actually that bad if you're wrong, so long as you can course correct quickly. And so being slow is very expensive. And I think if nothing else from all of the gaps and all of the challenges with corporate startup collaboration, I think moving quickly, sometimes a fast no is much better than a, even a slow yes or certainly a slow no. Um, and ultimately, um, I don't think this is going away anytime soon. This quote is horribly overused, but I come back to it as my closing comment because we are incredibly more connected than ever. I think 
um, there are always going to be, I don't think big companies are going to go away and there's going to be, there is a flourishing and there will continue to be a flourishing of freelancers and smaller companies. We need to find a smarter way to kind of bring these worlds together and collaborate more effectively. I've shared six kind of reflections from our side. I'd very much welcome um, your, your own reflections as well. So thank you for your attention and we'd love to get some questions. Thank you. Thank you very much, Roland, for this super insightful um, talk. Um, I can already see that there are questions in the room. Just a reminder for everyone here and um, online, there is the hashtag ODI Fridays if you want to ask anything. Um, I'm going to kick off, if that's okay, with a question that's a burning one from my side, okay. also for the work that we do. Mm. And then um, please raise your hands. I'll pass the microphone. It doesn't amplify your voice, but just... Um, keep that um, close, to your, um, close to you so that uh, people online can hear. One of the things that I'd love to know about your experience is yeah. who are the right people to talk to, uh, particularly in uh, the bigger organizations? Because mm. you rightly said that they're, they're really big, there are different uh, people that come in and out. Have you yeah. identified a pattern in the people that are more responsive uh, to talk to? Um. Yeah, it's a good question. I think um, over the last 10 years or so, the kind of uh, innovation team has, uh, uh, is a thing now. I think I read a statistic that something like 80% of the FTSE 100 now have kind of innovation teams, innovation strategies. And within that, there's usually a responsibility for, at least to some degree, engaging with the external ecosystem. But it's, it's hugely variable. And I think... Um, uh, it really depends on the organization, but um, some, some sort of more technology-centric organizations will have sort of tech scouts who are, whose job it is to find interesting kind of startups or technologies outside their organization. Some more kind of brand-centric uh, kind of organizations and consumer-centric organizations will have. Uh, it, it might, that responsibility might sit within the kind of brand and marketing team. So I don't think, it kind of, I don't think there's a single kind of job title. Um, often it's the most... Uh, most visible person externally, whether it's online on social media or whether it's you know speaking at conferences and events, um, and it's uh, people that are uh, approachable and interested, and so that's a kind of human judgment you can make. Um, uh, if people don't respond to you within a, within within a few days, then uh, then you can probably uh, write that one off. But um, increasingly, like the Lego example. Um, they were getting bombarded with ideas externally and they, they were saying no to all of them because they had no mechanism for dealing with it and it was overwhelming. So they've funneled that creativity into this process and some organisations do that. Um, I don't think it's quite as necessary for most organisations as it is for Lego because they get rather bombarded with that. So um, obviously it's good to start at the top but you'll inevitably be working with people some, you know, uh, uh, probably um, sort of more in kind of mid-level management positions. And um, so, so, yeah, I would generally kind of start with innovation or, uh, or marketing teams and kind of work your way from there. But um, I'm very happy, by the way, you know, I, I've got the Suits and Sneakers kind of network. Um, we're, I think, well connected. If anybody wants to connect to virtually anybody, I think within two degrees of separation, we could probably help. So please, please let me know afterwards and we'll do our best. Thank you. Thank you very much. I can see uh, Hi. I'm Andrew Yim uh, from Cast Business School. Um, Andrew. I, I just want to understand more about your your organization. Code. Okay. You said, I, I suppose it's a for-profit organization, isn't it? Uh, right? you, so what is yeah. your business model? So how, how, yeah. how do you make your revenue sure. from this? Yeah. So yeah, three things. We're a limited company. Um, so yeah, we are a for-profit company, but we... Um, 
think we have strong kind of social purpose as well, and we do a lot of work with, with charities and everything we're trying to do. The Ford stuff, I didn't go into detail, but a lot of that was around uh, um, helping people from uh, all aspects of society, especially kind of for poor, poorer demographics, especially in Detroit, um, uh, um, uh, find jobs and education through, through mobility. So we're, we're very kind of socially driven, but yes, we are a commercial for-profit company. So the three main ways in which we make money, uh, one is... Uh, uh, I guess we charge for our time and experience through kind of consulting fees. The second is we charge um, success fee for deals done in some cases, in not all. So we offset some of our uh, our fees in exchange for um, a sort of uh, a bonus for um, achieving uh, the outcomes that, that we've been tasked with delivering. And the third is we have developed uh, to date just one um, uh, technology product that we sell um, through as a software as a service kind of license fee uh, and we're in the process of developing uh, several others in that space so um, the vast majority of our fees still come through traditional consulting revenues but we're we're trying very hard to diversify that um, through through other means as well Do I have a follow-up? Yes. Yeah. Uh, about so could you tell us more about your role in terms of do you just lie up like According to your, your network, you try yeah. to line up two sides together, or how, how far would you uh, involve in this partnership between the, mm. like the big company and, and startup? Uh, we get involved, so, so yeah, no, just making the initial connection is just step one, and there's always step two, three, four, five, six, and we try and get involved as long as we can, because that's the most interesting, but obviously that's in our commercial interest to do that as well, but... Um, Normally, we'll get to a stage where, um, so we'll, uh, there's a lot of pre-work before you even find the companies, but so you do the pre-work, then you find potential partners, we'll vet and filter, we'll obviously do, uh, we'll often do coaching and mentoring of the startups, we'll sometimes do kind of coaching and mentoring of internal teams as well, we'll facilitate lots of kind of workshops, pitch events, whatever it might be, uh, and then um, uh, do some ad hoc support uh, whilst a deal gets signed and in some cases uh, whilst the first project or projects get delivered as well. But generally our role uh, tapers off over time uh, but we, we like to be involved for as long as possible and generally uh, from the small company perspective they, they like us to be involved as well because we're sort of on their side and we're, uh, we're providing that kind of facilitation role that I mentioned was missing from our own personal recent experience. Um, so yeah, we try and stay involved. But in some cases, that's not true. Sometimes a client just says, "Find, find us the top hundred smart home automation companies in the world uh, with you know th these criteria, and we'll do that, and then that's the job done." But uh, we we like to stay involved for longer if if we can. Hi, Roland. Uh, my name is Kyle Spellman. I had a question regarding the uh, the innovation airlock kind yep. of concept. So first of all, is that legally binding? And um, second of all, let's say your relationship kind of breaks down. Yeah. Um, what kind of clauses are in there? Who can take away kind of what information and how does that work? So, um, yeah, the innovation airlock is um, uh, it's kind of written up and it's one of our tools. So, um, so you can uh, find out more about the kind of specifics uh, there if you want to look at. It is legally binding in that... I mean, we use standard kind of best practice non-disclosure agreements, both downstream with the kind of smaller companies and upstream with the larger company. And so um, confidentiality is kind of managed through, through those agreements. Um, IP always resides with the originator, so that is typically the smaller company. Uh, and so if the larger company decides not to proceed within a predefined time-limited period, usually 90 days, 
uh, then uh, the small company is, is free to take it to anybody else. And um, so far, we've done this dozens of times, and it's always gone well. It's never gone to court, but uh, so it's never been tested in court. Uh, I believe it to be legally binding. We have had kind of uh, uh, lawyers making sure the contracts are all robust. Um, it's never been tested. I think in many ways it's symbolic because um, usually the, the, our fees as the facilitator are paid for by the big guys. It, um, it's um, uh, just by our, our being there playing this innovation airlock role, I think shows the smaller companies that the big company is... Um, is mindful of some of the challenges from their perspective, and they're investing uh, in us to play that role. Um, and, and so, yeah, it, it works. And I think others could use it as well. Um, I'm surprised it isn't used more often in that way. Thank you. That's right. Any more questions uh, from the room? No? Shall we take some from the line? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you talked about earlier. Um, Excuse me, I've got a cold. That's right. uh, equality yeah. uh, between startups and um, and organisations they're working with. Yeah. Do you have any advice uh, for a startup on on how that they can ensure that that quality equality will exist throughout the project? Um, so you mean uh, what what advice do I have for startups if they want to pitch to a kind of large company? If 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 they have their own. Yeah. Um, you were saying that the kind of equal values that they're both getting out yeah. of the project, and so. How does a startup ensure that they're continually getting those values out of the project, and not being kind of sucked into the values of the larger corporation? Yeah, I mean, you know, just to talk from our own recent example, which I shared, which was ultimately didn't you know go the way we planned. It's it's really really hard, and you know, despite the best laid plans that we had, and all the experience that we had, we I think we still misjudged a number of things, and we did get sucked into a process and slightly lost control of that. Um, uh, and so, you know, it is very, very hard. I think um, this is where I think kind of ruthless honesty, both internally within your organisation and with, with your partner at every step al along the way. If you're, if you're withholding information, if you're not being open, um, uh, that will just come back and bite you. So um, I think, to, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just trying to understand the quality aspect of your question because... Uh, um, uh, yeah, sorry to just ask you to clarify one more time, but in, you mean the quality of the work that you do together? So if you're building a product, you want to ensure that the, the, uh, sorry, the product a, remains... A, a quality, so... Equality. Yeah. Oh, sorry, equality, it's, yeah. It's my, my cold no, no, it's fine. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I, I thought you were talking weird. about uh, quality. Um, yeah. You were talking about yeah. quality yeah. and making sure that um, you kind of have equal yeah. amounts of... Out uh, you yeah. both have the same e outcomes yeah. um, or, or quality of outcomes between you. Yeah. And so it's just really just making yeah. sure. I, I just wondered whether yeah. there are some tips for... Because yeah. it would be easier as a bigger corporation, yeah. I assume, to be able to maintain, maintain that and, yeah. and get what you need out of it. Yeah. I think sometimes it's just about explicitly having the conversation. So what are you going to give to this and what do you want to get from it? And let's look at what you're giving and what you're getting and let's look what we're giving and what we're getting. And are those things reasonably equal? If not, then that's probably not sustainable. So sometimes it's just having the courage, especially from the smaller company perspective, to, to have that conversation and say, look, you know, this isn't going to work for us as it's currently structured um, because it, you know, the, the, the equality isn't there. So it does require some courage. I think I mentioned Touch Paper, which is um, this, this initiative that was set up about six months ago for which I wrote the original blog post that I've sort of based this talk upon. Um, they've got some really good kind of best practice kind of guidelines for corporate startup 
collaboration. For instance, small companies need to be paid on 30-day payment terms, not kind of standard 90-day big company payment terms, and, and lot, lots and lots of other advice as well. So, and what's nice about that is as a small company, you can say, um, you know, here's some best practice guidelines that have been signed up to by all these famous companies, Google and KPMG, and I can't remember the list, but anyway, lots of, lots of big organizations, and, um, uh, and at least make the request that you want the partnership to kind of proceed on, on the basis of that kind of structure. Um, but also, it's a, it's a people business, so you need to make your own call whether you, you trust the people you're dealing with and, and, uh, and whether you, know, you get a good feeling from that or not. And, uh, trust your instincts on that as well. So that's, that's not advice, but that's just a, from hard-fought experience kind of uh, um, advice I'm telling myself more than anybody. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we've got a question. Thank you. Thank you. I think the lady was first. Hi. Uh, sorry, I um, came in a bit late, but okay. for summarising as you went along. That's all right. Um, I'm wondering how much of this applies to what goes on in local government and the voluntary sector, mm -hmm. where you just look around and think, what on earth are they doing? Are yep. they doing it on purpose, or are they just incompetent? <laughs> um, I, I, yeah. I mean, you could mention some specific yeah. things, like, you know, how did they manage the Grenfell Tower, for yeah. example? Um, I mean, my take, so that, that's a big question. I, I don't think anybody wakes up in the morning wanting to be incompetent or do a bad job, but that definitely happens. And I think the larger the organisation, um, the more dysfunction often creeps in in terms of communication, in terms of process, in terms of systems. I mean, you know, we're 12 people and we, we, uh, within our company and we sometimes struggle to know what everybody's doing. And, you know, the, the bigger it's when you get to tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of employees, to some extent it's inevitable that that kind of dysfunction and that inertia and, and all of that stuff creeps in. I think what's particularly difficult about the kind of lo uh, local authority or the um, kind of political dimension is, um, at least in a kind of commercial context, ultimately it comes down to bottom line. Is this making money or isn't it? With, with a kind of political context, because you have social and political objectives as well, um, it, it's just more complex. You've got more criteria upon which you're making decisions and and it becomes inevitably more. Um, so I'm inherently an optimist. I find that optimism is frequently tested in my day-to-day -day interactions with people and organizations. But I think um, uh, uh, I would make a plea that we have to remain optimistic and sort of try and make stuff better. And so I, uh, I, I try and see the best in people. Um, there's a, if you're familiar with game theory um, and the prisoner's dilemma, the sort of classic example of game theory, which is, do you know the prisoner's dilemma? So two prisoners are um, arrested for a crime and they're sort of interviewed in separate cells and uh, basically if they uh, both keep stum they'll be fine but if one um, blames the other uh, uh, I, I'm sorry I'm explaining this terribly anyway prisoner's dilemma is, um, uh, is a sort of well-known thing in game theory the, the sort of classic uh, strategy in that is to always do good to other people until they sort of act badly towards you and then and then retaliate but only retaliate once anyway so that's a I'm not sure that applies in your local government office. I don't think you should be retaliating, but I think, um, I, uh, I think it's remarkable how a little bit of generosity of time or of enthusiasm or of making an introduction or whatever it can be can pay back kind of um, significant rewards, whether that's 
a big company, a small company, a local authority, whatever it might be. So I, uh, I try and stay optimistic. I don't believe anybody tries to be incompetent, but, uh, but it definitely happens. So I, I empathise with, I think, what sits behind your question. <laughs> I don't know if that helps or not, but yeah, that's a few thoughts on that subject. Um, actually, there was lots of quotes in there, and yeah. one quote that kind of stuck um, in the back of my head um, yeah. during your talk is, no one ever got fired for hiring IBM. Yeah. And I was just wondering, how do you, obviously, not being IBM and not yeah. representing IBM, kind of overcome that? Because a lot of these larger companies do have the fear that they don't want to go into a, yeah. a partnership that's not going to work when someone like IBM yeah. might be offering something similar and safer. Yeah. Um, uh, so we come across that issue all the time. We, we are not IBM, we're tiny. Uh, often that works to our advantage because the people that work with us are people that want something different from the, the I, it's not IBM, but you know, the, the kind of the, the standard offering. So they want something that's a bit quirky, a bit different, and I guess we fulfill that. Um, uh, but I think um, we're now at a stage where we work with Lego and Ford and UBS and we can, we can trade off, I guess, their brands and that gives the people that want to work with us some comfort that we know what we're doing because all these other people have worked with us. In the early days, 100% open, that was a lot more difficult. Um, and um, so we had to basically go in sort of slightly via stealth and more through our own human relationships and kind of build the credibility from there. But I think, um, I think those kind of uh, bulletproof kind of reputations, uh, of brands at least, are um, becoming a thing of the past. I think fundamentally, you know, there's brilliant people that work at IBM, of course there are, but there's also... I'm sure, no offense, IBM, if you're watching, you know, lots of terrible people that are deeply disengaged. And, and, uh, and, and so IBM's not one thing. And, and so um, it's based on whether you rate the people. And um, increasingly, certainly the work that we do, people are buying us because they like us, they trust us, and it's a very personal kind of relationship. And sometimes using our kind of smaller startup kind of uh, um, positioning uh, works in our favor because they've gone to all the big guys and, and that hasn't worked, so they want to try something different. But... Um, it, is, it is a challenge, and we do come across it, and we have lost projects that I feel we perhaps shouldn't have done to uh, a safer, safer set of organisations. Safer set of organisations, not IBM, but sort of, I guess, that equivalent. So, um, I don't know, why do you ask the question? Um, um, just the large company that, that I'm part of, obviously, yeah. um, you get... Is it IBM? Uh, it's not <laughs> IBM, luckily it's not. Um, you get the procurement guys, yeah. and there's a thousand and one questions, and you yeah. have... Uh, clear choice that you need to do and you need to be proving obviously yeah. that that you're you're doing the right thing for the company because yeah. you don't want to start a project that's that's going to fail and, and yeah. actually i've been involved in in two projects where we've got relatively small people that have trumped a um what, what would be deemed as a larger yeah. company in there because of the offering that's that's available and actually it it suits um what we want to do because they're more agile i guess as opposed yeah, yeah. to this is the offering you're getting and can't get anything else because we're bigger yeah. than you. I, I mean, um, it's a tough one. I think uh, you know, from, from the large company's perspective, they need to manage their risk. You know, if you if you're the procurement officer that's hired some small upstart that then I don't know runs away with your data or, or whatever whatever goes wrong, you know, you're potentially personally liable for that. So, from a large company, large organisation perspective, s spreading that decision making perhaps is the right thing to do, but that tends to slow things down. But um, that is quite common, and that's because um, there's a lot of personal liability that goes with these decisions. Um, and brands are just shortcuts. You know, people recognise IBM, and therefore, oh yeah, that must be fine. Um, I think that's short-sighted thinking. I think that is changing, but I think we're sort of in a transition there. 
Um, and uh, I'm not, not entirely sure where it will play out, but uh, yeah, interesting times. <laughs> Thank you for the question. We probably have time for one last question. Is there any in the room? Great. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the time then, because uh, okay. I do have one last one. Okay. Um, part of the, um, of the examples that you mentioned come mm. from different geographical um, yeah. locations. And yeah. I wonder whether um, you have noticed a difference in either how validated the open innovation model is or, how, uh, or the appetite mm -hmm. uh, from people in, in different countries or continents. Um, yeah, no, it's a great question. I think culture plays a huge, and geography plays a kind of huge uh, role in all of this stuff. So I think in North America, business culture is incredibly competitive and that actually uh, makes doing stuff like this harder in some cases. And more in uh, Middle East or Asia, often business culture is much more relationship-based and much more collaborative. And, and in, in a funny sort of way, that, that sometimes makes it challenging for different reasons. I think, let's not talk about Brexit in our final five minutes, but in, in, in the UK and in Europe, I think partly because of time zone and culture and, um, uh, and history and language and all the rest of it, I think, I think there's an interesting kind of middle ground and kind of business culture, especially here in London, I think, um, which brings together creative innovation, design, data, skills, but um, uh, you know, a melting pot of cultures, a melting pot of people. And I think this is an interesting place to be kind of playing that kind of broker facilitator role between global talent, technology, data, ideas. So um, uh, I think things are changing um, as well. And um, uh, uh, so I don't think that will remain static, but I think, um, uh, yeah, who knows where globalization will end up. Um, uh, anyway, I'm trying not to talk about politics, but anyway, there's, um, uh, uh, but uh, I think you know where, where we are right now, and, and the time we're in right now is a is a kind of a fascinating, precarious but fascinating time for for the, for this to, to kind of really scale and kind of go go even further than it already has done. So it's one that we obviously have a huge vested interest in, but we're as our name suggests, large advocates of openness, and we think that is inevitable. And therefore, rather than fight it, let's uh, go with it and then figure out new business models, operating models, cultures that, that can embrace that and respond to that. Great. Thank you very much, Roland, no for joining us. And I think okay. I can definitely share and agree on the openness and optimism often does mm. play um, um, a really important role in, in the outcomes. Yeah. So please join me in thanking Roland for his Grateful, uh, great talk. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. You've been listening to a Friday lunchtime lecture brought to you by the Open Data Institute.